Ah, yes, we are recording this, and it will be put on the web if you agree. <laughs> well, thank you uh, for coming Hi. to the second uh, seminar of the S Legal Governance uh, Seminar Series. My name is Federico Varese, and I organize the seminars with Diego Gambetta, who is here. And it's my pleasure to introduce Timothy Reiermacher. Uh, for today's research fellow. I was trying to get the right uh, pronunciation as opposed to the rainmaker. Uh, if you manage to write it right, then read it better. He's a research fellow at the Comfort Research Group at the University of Ghent. Uh, before that, he was at the LSC. He, his work on the political economy of conflict, uh, informal structures, and non-state uh, armed actors. So in a sense, it fits very well with what we do, and also on, uh, on organized crime, which is also something we work on. Um, with a particular interest in, uh, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And the talk of today is protection for sale, war, and the transformation of regulation on the Congo-Ugandian border. So without further ado, thank you very much for coming. Thanks for inviting me. Um, it's really a pleasure to, to be here. I see some familiar and less familiar faces. Um, and um, what, I, what I will try to talk about today is, is really about uh, the research I did for my PhD dissertation which I um, finalized in, um, in uh, 2007. Um, it's, it's really for the last eight to ten years or so I've, I've been interested in, in two interrelated topics. The one concerns this whole debate on uh, rebellion as organized crime, so to say, which has become very popular in the, in the political uh, economy of war analysis. Uh, in particular, un under the influence of, of authors like Paul Collier and, and Daniel Grossman and, and the likes. Um, as you, you know, or you don't know, this, this, this remark about rebellion uh, being very similar to organized crime came about in the debate over the so-called greed or grievance of uh, contemporary uh, non-state armed groups in which one side really sustains that armed rebellion today is mainly driven by economic uh, uh, motives. Uh, whatever the argument is, uh, that's being put forward, such claims are always based on the presumption that armed conflict today invariably uh, also involves a struggle over economic rents, so, or the competition over the authority to exploit the productive members of society. And within this discussion, uh, Paul Collier, for example, sees no difference between rebels uh, and pirates or bandits, as he says, because he describes them merely as, he describes rebellions merely as, between brackets, industries that generate profit from looting. While I'm not entirely antipathetic to this argument, I still think we need to make a distinction between organized crime and crime per se, because the former involves or a competition also over what you could call a market of protection. And as your professors Diego Gambetta and Federico Varese have repeatedly stated, such markets may come into being in a situation where there does not exist a single norm or law to ensure trustful cooperation. Or rather, several norms uh, pertain to the, to, the, to the same situation. And uh, a legal anthropologist from Benda Beckham calls this situation actually a pluralism of systems. And under such circumstances, uh, 
whether you talk about the Sicily of uh, the 1860s or Russia in the early 1990s, 90s, or as, as we hopefully, I, I hopefully will will show you in the, the DR Congo of the mid 1990s, various um, specialists of violence uh, can start introducing themselves. Uh, into the economic framework and act as power brokers between the state and the economy under such circumstances. Um, but while the well, phony or genuine, depends probably on where you stand, the, uh, protection they offer is mostly described as an evil that should be opposed, this can nevertheless be, be, be a genuine commodity in situations where trust is scarce and fragile, even if it is considered a costly a substitute for the latter. And there I quote, of course, your Professor Gambetta. Um, so instead of looking at um, armed rebels and their dilemmas of recruitment, of mobilization and organization, etc., I thought it would be interesting to also analyze the attitude of so-called these so-called productive, uh, productive members of society, who, uh, according to economic analysis, an analysis usually engage in a particular kind of risk uh, uh, calculation in which they weigh the estimated welfare they, could, they can potentially derive from the rebels' uh, presence against the potential losses on their enterprise and on society at large. So I decided to do a, a study on a specific group of transnational traders in, in Butembo, which is uh, a town in one of the most conflict-affected areas uh, of the world today, uh, uh, namely the, the DR Congo. It's a, it's a town that's situated not very far from the Congo-Ugandan border. I don't know if you, if you know where this is. Congo is a very big swath of territory in the middle of Africa, and Uganda sits just next to it, uh, on, on the east of it. Um, so the second topic <coughs> that started to interest me when I was there was how these transnational traders manage their enterprise in such difficult circumstances of protected armed conflict and weak or collapsed statehood, although I will question these terms later in my presentation. I particularly became interested in the fragile balance these transnational traders have to maintain, have had or have to maintain still, between being there you know, uh, in China, Taiwan, Indonesia, uh, Taipei, where they buy their goods, um, and being here, being in Butembo, where they actually develop their enterprise and sell their goods and uh, uh, try to develop also long-term uh, commercial relationships, actually in both places. But also the balance between being self-sufficient, what they call themselves being autar uh, autarkic, uh, politically independent and being protected, insured against mischief, banditry and, and random plunder. And as I will explain in a minute, the, the war in Eastern Congo posed some particular challenges to uh, economic enterprise and traders had to, to organize accordingly. Uh, in my PhD dissertation, I subsequently used the term uh, trust network, uh, used uh, from Charles Tilly, uh, to discuss the, the ramified social network within which Butembo's transnational traders balance their risk and their valuable resources during a period of war and political transition. I think we need a little bit of context probably to, 
set, set, the, uh, set things clearer. Um, now, the Democratic Republic of, of Congo, formerly Zaire, has been really in, in political term uh, more at least since uh, colonial independence in 1960. Um, in 65, there was a, a rebellion by uh, Mulele. Uh, some of you might remember the adventures of Che Guevara in the East, uh, which weren't very successful. But Mulele was, uh, was then actually uh, called back from, from exile uh, and, and, and killed by uh, Joseph Mobutu, who became uh, uh, Zaire's long-term ruler and, and dictator for the next 30 years. Now, uh, the struggle between East and West became uh, even more acute in, in the early 1990s when an initial skirmish over land and citizenship rights uh, uh, expanded into a full-fledged uh, regional war. Uh, involving over a dozen African and, and even less African states. In the first place, of course, Rwanda and Uganda, whose new leaders were particularly afraid of the wave of Hutu extremism that threatened them from their western border. We all remember the Rwandan genocide and the refugee flows this generated, but also the fresh attacks that were then staged by uh, Hutu uh, militias from um, refugee camps in Zaire with the support of, um, of uh, Mobutu. Um, but later also, there were other countries drawn in, like Zimbabwe, Angola, and, uh, and even others that rushed to the support of Congo's new president, uh, Laurent Desiree Kabila, after his, his fallout with, with his initial supporters. In, in uh, 1998, uh, a new rebellion actually rose in the eastern city of Goma, called the Rassemblement Congolais pour la Démocratie, which gathered uh, the support of Rwanda and, and Uganda. Now, I don't have much time to, to go into all the details of this, uh, as, as this is also not the main topic of my presentation. People who want to know more about this can, can read uh, uh, many books, and including some, of, some, some articles I wrote about this myself. But what, what is relevant to the discussion uh, we uh, I would like to have with you today is that this regional poly-war, uh, let's call it that way, generated a whole set of new uh, uh, political configurations that were incredibly local and transnational at the same time. Although, although the, the, uh, the connotation new is also something that could be into question. Um, I say poly-war uh, because the, this war involved different scales of, of fighting and of conflict at the same time, of course. And Mark Duffield uses the term emerging complexes uh, to contrast uh, the, the uh, terminology of complex emergencies that is often used in humanitarian practice uh, uh, today. And what he means by this essentially is that the increasingly privatized networks of non-state actors that start, start working beyond the conventional competence of ter territorially defined governments in such uh, circumstances uh, also stimulate the growth of parallel or transborder trade and enables local warlords to forge local global uh, connections as a means of self-provisioning and realization. And here I'm quoting, rather than expression, uh, expressions of breakdown 
chaos, he says, the new wars can be understood as a form of non-territorial network war that works through and around states. <coughs> I, I also disagree with some points with Mark Duffel, but anyway, that will probably become uh, clear to the presentation. The point Mark Duffel wants to make is that these regional wars are also, could also, uh, in part at least, be interpreted as processes of social uh, transformation. And in sociological terms, this idea actually, uh, I think, goes back to Norbert Elias, who, who observes that in practice, different social orders can actually coexist at the same time. And different conceptions on how to regulate social relations, different regimes of economic accumulations, territoriality, representation, and, and even legality can and historically have existed side by side. Although these do not necessarily have to be backed by the nation uh, states. A second interesting point made by Elias is that it's impossible for a ruler to uphold one single code or regulatory regime unless this is backed by the establishment of a monopoly over the legitimate, uh, legitimate use of force, of course. And under the circumstances I was studying in the DR Congo, uh, early this century, no such condition was of course present. Rather, there was a competition between an oligopoly of, of violence. So there was ample feeding ground for a market of protection to arise, especially uh, in 1999 after the signing of the Lusaka ceasefire agreement between uh, uh, the uh, Congolese militias. Um, which more or less sanctified the front lines between these different opposing militias and foreign and, and national government forces as territorial limits. Um, and I think this ter territorialization of armed struggle and, and, and also consequently of political representation and ethnicity is in fact another consequence of contemporary uh, peace-building practice we've seen from uh, the former Yugoslavia in Europe to Africa's Great Lakes region. And I have described together with my colleague uh, Kung Vlasenbrot uh, in a region a bit to the north of uh, uh, the region I, I, where I did my PhD uh, research, namely in Ituri, uh, where in 1999 a conglomerate of Ugandan army generals, uh, local militia leaders, and uh, also a local land-owning aristocracy and, uh, and, and uh, let's say, uh, business community, um, uh, you know, found each other, so to say, in such a regional emerging complex, which at a certain point became uh, incredibly genocidal uh, in nature, and in fact, made me conclude that under certain circumstances, international peace building may st stimulate actually such ethnic cleansing, such uh, 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 such uh, uh, genocidal uh, political configuration. But that's of course a, a matter I won't discuss um, uh, with you right now. Um, anyway. As just to, to set a bit the, the, the context, uh, what I would like to, I hope everybody's had the time to read the paper. If you haven't, uh, um, I hope to give a little bit of flesh to the argument I tried to make there uh, about the buying and selling of protection. 
by referring to a single uh, biographical example, uh, namely that of Dr. Kambale Kisoni, uh, a man uh, I, I didn't have a chance to meet uh, in, in Eastern Congo because he was uh, particularly uh, wary of having contacts with, with researchers and the likes, uh, and there were a number of reasons for, for this I will explain in a, in a minute. Um, in some way, um, Dr. Kisoni really presents, uh, is, is, is really the typical member of this Nande. Well, by the way, the, the Nande are the, 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 the community that is uh, uh, majoritary in the, in the region I, I was uh, studying, the two territories of Berimbero in, in uh, northern Kivu. So he's, he's sort of the typical member of, of this Nande Trust network, which, because his activities really consisted of a, of a combination of uh, state resistance, uh, inform, informality, and sometimes even criminality on the one hand, and sheer complicity and collaboration with state administrations and officials on the other hand. He was born from a, from a Protestant clergyman, and we hear Weber singing in the background here. Um, there's also an interesting discussion there about Protestantism, the Protestant work ethic, etc., uh, as a basis for the growth of capitalism in, in Beni Lubero. I discuss uh, amply my PhD dissertation. I, I actually disagree with that. Um, but anyway, I won't go into that now. Um, but anyway, there, there you have it. Kisoni was born from a Protestant clergyman. Uh, but the way he became first acquainted with the local uh, business community was uh, through his work as a as a vet uh, of one of um, uh, for one of Putembo's uh, um, leading businessmen. He was working on his farm a bit outside of Putembo, and later he married his daughter, which of course made him inherit all the family capital. Um, but typical for the stubborn sort of character of Isoni was that. When, when this sort of cause a fight within the family, you know, an outsider with, with, with no links whatsoever to, to business and, uh, you know, earns all this family capital, um, he just said, you can have it, I, I don't need this, I will start my business on my own. And then Kisone really started his business in the 1980s, I might say, as a gold smuggler between Denzaire and Burundi. There was a Belgian gold buyer then called Antoine Goetz, who uh, had his office in uh, the uh, uh, Burundian capital of Bujumbura, and uh, both actually uh, uh, set up a, a company called Congacom uh, in, uh, in Eastern Congo. And it was actually a very dangerous enterprise because smugglers frequently had to pass through the jungle uh, or at night to, to avoid uh, Zarian soldiers and members of what they call the division, the Sécurité Présidentielle, which was sort of the, the, the special forces of President Mobutu, from preying on their, on their lucrative enterprise. Uh, traders subsequently passed mostly in very small groups. They, they rented out a van together and stuck the gold in the wheel caps and uh, uh, etc. found all, all sorts of things to, to, uh, to hide their, uh, their gold for, from, uh, from the security forces. And of course, 
mm, these little groups had to share a considerable level of, of trust among themselves. Um, the leading group of smugglers um, actually came all from the same village uh, a little bit outside of the Tim Butembo. So there was a lot of community ostracism, even kinship ties that sort of knit this group together. But Kizoni didn't make part of this. He, he just, he was a loner, he traveled by himself, which brought him even more prestige, of course, because he was regarded as, as even more courageous. Now, during this period, so let's say the early 1990s, two things happened at the same time. One hand, the collapse of Mobutu's uh, uh, divide and rule system, let's say, on the one hand, and on the other hand, the growth, both in volume and geographical scope, of Butembo's informal cross-border business. Um, actually, um, from the late 1980s, early 1990s onwards, the informal cross-border commerce really boomed in the area. Uh, <clears throat> authors like uh, McGaffey and also uh, Kate, who, who wrote about this, uh, so going to uh, the, the details of that evolution now. What is interesting from Tembo's perspective is that this evolution motivated uh, transnational traders to become uh, more complicit uh, with state officials. So in, instead of letting them prey at random, let's say, on their activities, traders organized collective donations to keep uh, Zairean soldiers and security forces at bay. And apparently that strategy also worked. Uh, while in 92, 93, the whole of Zaire was experiencing a lot of uh, political turmoil and, and random plunder by, by renegade Zairean soldiers, etc. This was not happening in, uh, in Tembo. And... Uh, for example, one, one trader uh, told to me about this period that we know that these people, uh, namely the military, are bandits, <clears throat> and that they greatly disturb the surrounding areas in our, in our commerce. But with this contribution, at least they didn't come and harass us here in town. This convinces us of the fact that security is for sale here. La sécurité ici, on l'achète, okay? Um, and according to my own analysis, this growing collaboration between a largely privatized state army and informal transnational entrepreneurs enabled the latter to greatly expand their business. And this became even more evident during the war. I have some, some numbers about this uh, uh, to, 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 to uh, uh, demonstrate this, this uh, massive growth of uh, mainly uh, imports in, into the area during uh, the late 1990s, and I can show them if somebody is interested. But to go back to Kisoni, uh, thanks to his relation with the local rebel leader, he became one of the main exporters of gold from Ituri, uh, the region I just talked about, and together with another trader, he controlled about 50% of the gold trade from Eastern Congo until his death in, in July 2007. Uh, this is uh, some evidence we get from Human Rights Watch. Uh, the report of Human Rights Watch also talks about the fact that Congo Com actually had its own uh, 
smelting plant in Uganda uh, to, uh, to, to, to farm the, the Congolese gold into ingots. Besides Congocom, Kisono also owned an aviation company with, with, with uh, which he regularly transported gold and even arms from and to the mines in Ituri. And um, in all these relationships with the local rebellion in Ituri, with the, the, um, the uh, local rebel commander in North Kivu, in Mutembo, uh, actually uh, um, gave him the epithet of, of being the cashier of, of the local rebellion. Um, Kisuni was particularly close to the local rebel leader uh, in Mutembo, Mbusani Ambwisi, who later became the Minister of Foreign Affairs in the in the later Kabila Junior government. And there was also an interesting international dimension to this, namely that the gold that was then smelted in Uganda was actually legalized through this operation and sold further on to smelting plants in, in Europe, including Switzerland and the UK, actually. Now, anyway, I don't want to sound like, like some, some sort of crime addict here, but I would like to draw your specific uh, attention to, to, a, to, to a dimension, uh, to, to a specific dimension of the relationship between businessmen and, uh, and, uh, and, and entrepreneurs in the area. Um, during Kisoni's administration of, uh, of the rebels' cash flow, and at the same time, a very short time, he even became the rebels' finance minister. He set up a, an ingenious pre-finance system that reconciled the businessmen' constant need for protection and the rebels' need for cash. And this, uh, this system actually consisted of the payment of a certain amount of contributions by uh, uh, the businessmen to the rebel uh, movement in return for tax exemptions uh, uh, by the rebel leadership, which uh, of course <coughs> uh, uh, represented profit for the rebel movement, but to some uh, degree also protection for uh, these local uh, uh, or transnational traders, let's say. So if Le they pay for a tax exemption, it will like a tax? tax. Um, <laughs> No, I, I, I go back to this, uh, to, to this when I, I will pull out some documents later on to see how this actually, the system actually evolved. <clears throat> it's a, uh, the pre-finances pre system means that you prepay a certain limited amount uh -huh. of, of, uh, of taxes for uh, a whole volume of goods that you can then import uh -huh. free of taxes, okay? But there's actually an interesting evolution to this um, that I will come back to uh, later on. Um, and also, rather than, than, than a, a general agreement that you know, was concluded at, uh, in one particular moment, it, it really constituted a deal between a limited cartel uh, of transnational traders, which was then gradually expanded over the entire uh, business community, uh, by a system of, of, of piggybacking, uh, uh, mainly. What happened during that period, um, I think, was, was very curious and could also possibly generate further reflection uh, in the ongoing discussion about so-called rebel governments during protected uh, uh, armed conflicts. Because um, whereas the system was initially meant to finance the rebels' 
perennial uh, uh, empty treasury, it actually became an instrument in the hands of the businessmen to squeeze the rebel leadership into important concessions. Um, as one former state administrator explained to me, the decision by, so by the Butembo's business community to join the rebel movement was a result of a conscious calculation from the part of a number of economic elites to counter the financial insecurity that had been imposed on them by a negatively perceived patrimonial system. So although they didn't invest much of what they earned in the local, local economy, this administrator said the decision still enabled uh, these businessmen to gain strength over the local rebel leadership. And that, in a summarized form, becomes uh, clear through the quote of uh, a former rebel representative who was actually a member of the presidential protection unit of Mbusanianwisi. And he said, we were essentially a weak state. We didn't have a budget, so the money earned from tax duties was immediately used. As an official, you only observed the entry and exit of goods into the region. You were a minister only in title, but not in real terms. Vous étiez un ministre de titre, mais pas de fait, he says in French. We were obliged to create a favorable climate for the merchants because they were the only ones with which we were left. Um, and to explain this a little bit more, I, I'll let you take a look at the, the, the following documents I got to in my research. <coughs> Sorry. Okay, so what I said was there actually an evolution in this, in this pre-financing system. This is uh, the initial form of collaboration that emerged between certain, um, certain traders and uh, the rebel leadership. It's a technical note that uh, explains how one, uh, 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 let's say, one business agrees for a certain amount of goods uh, to, uh, to pass uh, through the customs post for, in return for a reduced uh, tax uh, payment. Okay? So this is just an ad hoc agreement for uh, one, uh, one uh, truck or, or one, uh, one uh, say, load of goods signed by uh, with a stamp from the financial commissariat. But this system then Evolved. Here you have him, Kukisori Kambale, the, the president uh, of, uh, <coughs> at that time, of the Fédération des Entreprises du Congo, uh, and, and the rebels' uh, finance minister. So it becomes a little bit more official. You see, it's also typed already. It's a typewriter. Uh, it confirms I have received uh, this amount uh, of money uh, for these number of containers, these vehicles. Um, uh, to tax uh, just all these taxes uh, are now covered um, uh, for in, in turn for, for a very reduced payment of course um, uh, to straight so the business is paying the, uh, the the finance department of the rebel movement okay but Kimbale. He is confirming, he is sort of the, the guarantee to this contract between the business and the finance ministry. 
Okay. I don't call this yeah. in legal terms. So it's certifying that the businessman is paying to the rebels. Exactly. And he's kind of he's a business representative. He's uh, no, he's uh, he's the representative of the rebel movement. Oh, the rebel. Um, you know, ensuring that this deal is being respected. So he's in between the two. He's in between the two because he's of course a businessman himself. So that's what I mean. As well, yes. And the date of the previous document is when? Ninety-nine. And the previous one you showed us was. Was it earlier or was it later? Oh, three. This is the. Uh, this is later. Anyway, I mean, these these systems have. I mean, uh, coexisted, of course, huh? and it depended also uh, on on the, the level of engagement mm -hmm. the businessmen actually uh, had with with the rebel movement. Right. Um, and is it always in U.S. dollars? Yeah, well, Congolese francs uh, are are just used. To, <laughs> that's just to pay the the, the custom officer uh, standing at the border of. Or, I mean, on the local market, you could, you could get beans and, and and oranges with Congolese francs, but nothing really substantial. <coughs> There's 500 Congolese francs to the dollar, more or less. So that also means sacks of money. Medsan uh, Veterinary, so he's, he's uh, also uh, boasting the fact that he's uh, an academic, of course. So. Uh, and here it becomes even more official in the sense that you have, this is, uh, I think, even after uh, Kisoni. Uh, yeah, this, this is then the, the, the finance minister at the time in 2002. <coughs> and the amount of goods of course, uh, uh, grows uh, increasingly. Uh, and here you don't have sums anymore in the contract, but percentages, okay? You pay 15%, I think, yeah, 15% yeah, of the official tax um, rate. Again, the business is paying the uh, financial commissioners. So, Prepayment of customs uh, duties, uh, and then there is this is a letter actually of the Inspector General of uh, Ofida, which is the, the custom office, to his uh, boss saying, Okay, these contain containers now have to be exempt of taxes because 15% has already been paid in advance. Who is guaranteeing that? Hmm? Who is guaranteeing that? Who's got it? Guaranteeing that. Uh, again, this is the, 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 the finance ministry is the, is the guarantee of the, uh, of the contract, although this is not Kisoni anymore now, but this man, the boss of the, of why, the financial commission. Why is, is this in the interest of the <coughs> finance ministry? Or, I mean, they're getting less money, yeah? so what, is, what do they gain from having this in advance, unless there is some opportunity to tax well, because of what I said before we didn't have any budget so the money earned from tax duties was immediately used they didn't have anything I mean they were basically a weak state and it was a, a it was a, a, a continuation of, of uh, it was actually also the same administration but now occupied by uh, rebel representatives that didn't have the power to make claims on the business community because it simply didn't have 
you know, the financial strength to do that. So it became increasingly dependent on these business, uh, mainly importers and import export businesses for their own uh, survival. Okay. But this is so at the beginning because it's a continuity of chance, which is basically um, it's there an emergency. It. So we accepted the prepayment of the tax. The urgency was permanent. <laughs> so, yeah. How was history? Was the uh, maybe we should. Uh, sorry, maybe I, I'm, I'm partly responsible for this, but maybe we should let you finish and then. No, I'm, I'm nearly finished. I, I, I think I just need to show you one more document, and then, and then maybe conclude, and we we, we, we come yes, back to the yeah, documents. Sure, okay. Yeah. Uh, this is un contrat d'emprunt. Un so it's a, a loan contract. It's not a technical mode anymore, you know, ad hoc agreement. It's neither uh, a, a contract for, uh, a, 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 let's say, a determined amount of goods being exempt of taxes or, or, or having to pass for a reduced amount of taxes. This is a, a contract between the rebel movement and a certain business um, for... Uh, uh, in which they agree uh, which amount of taxes um, they should pay. I think they're actually completely exempt of taxes uh, in this in this um, in this complaint. What is um, anyway? I, I I won't read this all out to you. But what is interesting is this part contra, yeah, so contract, and it's also said that. If there would be uh, a disagreement over this, uh, first there will be a, an attempt for an, amic an amicable uh, sort of solution, and then, and if it doesn't work out, you know, there's always the um, uh, judiciary uh, for challenge. <laughs> Which I mean, to certain extent, this is this is of of course all bureaucratic language and, and not very um, not very realistic. But, but the, 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 the fact that you have such a contract is, of course, uh, very significant. Uh, for, for the reason I, I will try to explain uh, now in, in my conclusion. Um, so actually, I made two points, yes, in, in the beginning of my presentation. Um, So one was about markets of protection, and the, the, the other one was about social embeddedness. Um, the first point I, I would like to make is, is, is that rather than a, a protection for sale, as, as Grossman and also um, other uh, authors have it, the pre-finance agreement uh, uh, that um, sort of evolved in Mutembo constituted what, what I would call a pluralizing moment in which the gradual reinterpretation of rules and relationships or some even say the constant unregulation of economic practice gave rise to a new and fairly stable legal between brackets arrangement that even continued to regulate economic transactions after the rebellion even when a uh, peace deal was concluded, you had a transitional government being put in place with Kabila Jr., Joseph Kabila, Kabila the, the son of Laurent Désiré. Um, the discussion went on uh, in, a, in an increasingly official way about 
you know, the relationship between business and administration. And actually, a whole, um, let's say, a group of businessmen from Bhutan who actually made a trip to, to Kinshasa to go and talk about la dette publique, the public debts uh, the rebel uh, movement owed to them uh, because they actually sustained rebellion. I mean, businessmen were also uh, offering hotels, aviation companies, logistics, trucks, etc., to the rebel movement, and, and were, were paid paid for this. Uh, but in their eyes, not not enough, and they they went to discuss this with the new government. So they said, I mean, the rebel movement in place at that time was actually the state. So whether we talk to them or, or now to Joseph Kabila, for us that is really the same thing. Um, what happened in fact in Mutembo was a transformation of what you call, could call a private extraction regime to a joint extraction regime, which also produced some amazing public outcomes, I might say. And I, I give some evidence in the paper about these. Um, the fact that you had a shift in the relationship, in the power relationship between the, the rebels and the businessmen um, actually made that these businessmen increasingly started to act as local governors, engaging in the management of, 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 uh, of local security, in the maintenance of roads, in, in building works, in, in uh, social service delivery, like building of hospitals and schools, etc., etc. Um, but I would really like to emphasize that this rebel and rebel business collaboration, let's say, was not at all generalized, and in fact resembles the model that is presented by um, Rocco Sharone on the mafia's protection. You have a whole uh, calibration and a whole different scale of collaboration between business and, and organized crime well, as well. I mean, from being completely out of it to being completely complicit <coughs> with the mafia's protection business, of course. But the point um, Professor Gambetta also makes is that once the mafia's protection becomes internalized, so to say, it becomes difficult to describe their insurance as phony. Okay? And the second point I didn't so make so much today, but I, I do make that in my doctoral uh, thesis, is that entrepreneurs, and, and especially those that are leading informal transnational enterprise, must constantly balance their, their um, resources in a rapidly changing world of risk and opportunities over long physical distances. And whereas some analysts point that there's a necessity of, of social capital, I prefer to talk about the equilibrium between so-called spaces of engagement and spaces of dependence, which in my view explains better the spatial and foremost the relational dimension of these business uh, activities. So that was more or less my conclusion. We, we can come back to the... Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, so we now turn to <coughs> questions. Um, sorry, I, I can't...